Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley. Oh, what a house. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news with Willem van Dender and shortly, and of course, our former ITN journo turned pundit Derek Dyson will be joining us throughout the show. Now, after Football Australia changed their name from the FFA a couple of years ago, they made the decision to find a new name for the nation's largest national knockout football competition, College Street Feedback from Fans, and the decision was made to bring back the most obvious historic name for the tournament, and we're now a week away from the round of 32 of the Australia Cup. To take us through the beginning of the sharp end of the tournament from 10 and Paramount Plus, we'll get some in from Teo Pelaziri after Sobrews and Matilda Central with Willem. Then Manchester United touched down in Australia in the last 24 hours for the second leg of their pre-season tour after getting Eric Ten Hag's reign off to an excellent start, albeit in a friendly 4-0 against Liverpool. Ten Hag has the unenviable job of taking over. They put four goals past their bitter rivals in Bangkok to find out whether this is the beginning of the long-awaited post-Alex Ferguson era or another false dawn. We'll talk to the Athletics man on the Red Devils beat, Carl Anker. And of course, we'll wrap it up with everything else in stoppage time with Derek. Now, Edge, you're still travelling. This World Cup has, uh, has got you uh, busier than a frog in a sock, mate. And a frog in a sock is pretty busy, Rob. Uh, hello, Roberto, good to uh, hear who's on the show uh, for this episode of Box to Box. Looking forward to speaking to Teo, who's been staying up all night, uh, uh, commentating the Euro women's uh, coverage for Sport, which has been great listening to. We might even ask him a question or two about that. But uh, yes, I'm making my way back to Australia, but uh, have stopped in Thailand on the way home for some business. And um, yeah, it's all it's all good over here. And the World Cup continues to get closer and. Uh, everybody's looking forward to a, a magnificent event. And, and how are you, Willem? You must have some uh, big news about uh, ex-Manchester United star Nanny. I do, Michael. Great to be back for another week. Yes, Nanny has been confirmed as a victory player on a two-year market deal. And he's in the mix, so they say, for a debut against Manchester United this Friday. As you mentioned, Rob, United's meeting with victory comes three days after Eric Ten Hag's tenure. Began with that 4-0 win over Liverpool. And we do look very much forward to bringing in Carl Anker a little bit later on to discuss United in detail. But for now, we'll touch on Nanny, guys. He's a 35-year-old, but still plenty of running the legs uh, is the reports four-time Premier League winner with United, 2016 European uh, champion with Portugal. Michael, would you have him as the best player outside of Alessandro Del Piero to come to the A-League? Have to be up there. Um, and he was playing, obviously, in Venice uh, last year in Serie A. So he's got some pedigree behind him, even though he's 30... What, what is he, 35? Huh? 35, yep. So <clears throat> I, I think he's right. Uh, he's obviously not as good as Del Piero, Um Maybe Dwight York in the first year of the A-League was uh, a bigger name, uh, maybe a better player. But let's wait and see what Nanny can do on the park. Del Piero was very good for Sydney. So you would expect Nanny to be the same for Melbourne victory, wouldn't you? Rob, there seems to be some real energy behind the A-League, I think. I think the fact that we've got the early start, October 7, uh, certainly means that we're not going to be sitting around uh, for, for all of October like we have the past couple of years. Nanny, Charlie Austin, a couple of big signings. And for a lot of guys individually, there's going to be some real urgency ahead of the World Cup for uh, for what you could consider maybe maybe four or five places up for grabs in Australia's 26 uh, from the A-League. So I think there's some uh, some great energy. Still a couple of months out, but uh, but positive signs. Yeah, I, I think um, that's a fair call, Will. I mean, if you, you look at everything that went on in the 
past 12 months off the back of the past two years. You know, you had uh, Paramount Plus coming on as the new broadcaster. You had another COVID-disrupted season and, uh, and and all of the elements that, that, that were in the mix around that. So I think... Off the back of that, and and with the World Cup and with the um, the, the excitement of you know players perhaps uh, playing for spots in uh, in the extended Socceroos uh, squad, that uh, we, we've got a lot to, to look forward to. I, I, I agree, and it's uh, um, it's one of the I think um, if not most anticipated tournaments in the past uh, you know five or six years. Then um, it's it's got to be uh, in the grand final. United after victory are going to play Palace in Melbourne, uh, and then the Queensland Super Cup is also taking place in uh, in Queensland. Obviously, Leeds meeting Brisbane Raw on the Gold Coast as we record Sunday. Leeds will meet Aston Villa at SunCorp, and then Villa and the Raw head to Townsville next Wednesday. To the big international news of the week: former FIFA vice, uh, former FIFA president Sepp Blatter and Vice President Michel Platini have been cleared on corruption charges at their fraud trial in Switzerland. The pair have been charged over the transfer of two million Swiss francs, about three million Australian, from FIFA to Platini in 2011, which they claimed was outstanding from consultancy work between 98 and 2002. After an 11-day trial, Judge Joseph Josephine Contu Albrizio found it was credible that there could have been a verbal agreement between the pair, credible that Platini might not have needed the money right away, and implausible that Platini would have worked only for the modest sum outlined in his contract. Rob, you've been following this one uh, closely throughout the week, and there was a great article by Matt Slater in The Athletic. You read Matt's article, he, he talks about the Swiss authorities uh, having charged the pair with fraud, mismanagement, misappropriation of FIFA funds, and the forgery of a document in 20, 2021. So that's an incredibly high bar of evidence to, to prove uh, when when it comes to uh, to you know, potentially locking up uh, two of the most high-profile sporting administrators in the world. So, look, uh, the, the decision's been made um, and it's uh, it's hopefully um, the, the, the last that we hear of the uh, the era that uh, that defined FIFA over that period of time and UEFA as well. Um, I think we just um, dust our hands off, um, let them go off into the sunset and we all move on. Back onto the pitch, England have announced themselves as the team to beat at the Women's Euros, bagging eight goals against Norway to extend their lead at Group A. And Rob, what's happened to the Italians carrying the burden of the nation at senior uh, tournaments for the last little while? And they've come out in the first game five uh, against France and been embarrassed 5-1. It wasn't a good result, but in a, a tournament with some pretty uh, uh, high scores, I guess that uh, um, that some outliers could could occur in the early qualifying rounds. Uh, by the time most of our listeners uh, are tuning into the podcast, they'll know the result of uh, of the Iceland match uh, that Italy have next. So they're still in the running. I mean, Belgium uh, uh, have uh, have been competitive uh, already and uh, uh, and are likely to be a, a pretty stiff opponent uh, for for Italy in that that last round after they drew one all with Iceland in the in the first round. So look, I don't count them out altogether. Um, We've uh, we've seen results, uh, uh, you know, strange results in the group stages of tournaments before. So, uh, you know, the Italians they do have a reputation for warming up and uh, and hitting uh, the the sharp end of the tournament in their best of form. So, you know, I'm not without hope. The Ukrainian Premier League will resume on the nation's national flag day of August 23 without crowds, but with a strong military presence at matches. Sports Minister Vadim Gutsait stated shelters and air raid sirens will be among the safety provisions. No matches have been played in Ukraine since Russia's invasion in February. Meanwhile, Everton have announced they'll host Dynamo Kiev in a pre-season friendly on August 29, with proceeds to go to humanitarian charities supporting people of Ukraine. So, Rob, I guess it does seem a little bit 
implausible. But then again, we're not on the ground day to day. We don't know what the actual sort of literal situation on the ground is like. And we know lots of football infrastructure has been damaged on destro- or, and destroyed. So we'll probably be limited travel and limited venues. But I know you're always a big advocate of getting some norm, uh, normality back where you can. So this is a, a step in the right direction. I think it's a, it's a wonderful step and uh, and for uh, for people to experience some kind of joy and distraction from the uh, events that are going on around them is, is a positive thing. So, you know, we don't know a lot about it other than what you've just said, but uh, a degree of normality coming back uh, can only be a good thing, can't it? Chelsea have been in the market under Ted Bowley for the first time in a big way. Raheem Sterling is coming in from Man City for £50 million. He signed a five-year deal. For City, that means they've recouped the £49 million they spent on uh, Sterling when he was 20 in 2015. During the time with or during his time with the club, he scored 139 goals and lifted four league titles. Chelsea are also expected to confirm the signings of Rafinha from Leeds and Kalidou Koulibaly, who of course has a big summer coming up with Senegal. And they've also been linked with City defender Nathan Ake. So Rob, some, uh, as I said, some big first signings uh, for this post-Roman uh, Abramovich era. All right, Willem, well done. Okay, stick around, uh, Edge, and Willem are going to have a good yarn to Teo Pelaziri, who uh, keen football supporters will will be familiar with across, uh, whether it's radio, TV. Uh, he's, Edge said he's uh, he's calling the uh, the games for the, the Women's Euros right now for 10 and Paramount Plus and doing a, an excellent job of it. But we want to talk to him about the Australia Cup, which is about to kick off the round of 32. So stick around. Teo Pelaziri next on box to box Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. This is Box to Box. Now, we mentioned off the top of the show that when Football Australia changed their name from the FFA a couple of years ago, they also changed the name of the FFA Cup to the Australia Cup, which uh, we all agree was uh, an excellent decision. And a man who's been calling those games for a long time now, he's one of the voices of football in this country. At the moment, he's also calling the Euros for 10 and Paramount Plus, Teo Palazzieri. How are you, Teo? Uh, it's great to be on and great to be talking about a competition that, like you, uh, is very close to my heart. Absolutely. And uh, your very good friend, Michael Edgley, sitting over there in Bangkok before uh, he finally returns home. And he absolutely loves this tournament, Edge, don't you? Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to Taya on our podcast. But I thought I'd get Taya on this week because um, Australia Cup uh, Cup sets are definitely um, a highlight of this event. And I guess the first question I've got for Taya is, you know, the matches that you've called, which has been the most memorable Cup set? The one that even shocked you when you were calling it. Um, and just how much fun is a cup set when a NPL club rolls an A-League club? Uh, I think I've only called the one instance where an NPL club rolled an A-League club. Can I, can I be contrarian in saying that sometimes you can sense that these things are coming? I feel as though when Adelaide United lost to Redlands, uh, I remember that night because it was, I think, 2017. And that night I was uh, sitting in the car watching it on my phone, having just finished at an NPL game. And Rafe Griffin was the caller up in Brisbane. And it was it was so absurd the way that they conceded the equalising goal with the big keeper mistake from Eugene Galekovic and then went on to win it in extra time. And we've barely heard the Redlands name since in an NPL Queensland or a Australia Cup perspective. But that night was just so particularly brilliant that an NPL Queensland team could knock out the defending A-League champions. But Kind of that, that's what you talk up and build these ties to be. And the one match that I was commentating was a year after 2018, 
Heidelberg United knocking out Perth Glory. But based on the Perth squad, based on the time they were at in pre-season, and based on where the club was at as well coming back after the salary cap scandal, everyone went to Olympic Village that night hoping and expecting that Perth would score first, maybe win. And then when they did score first, Perth Glory didn't really put up any sort of a threat to try and score an equaliser in that game. And it was certainly considered a cup upset because of the relative budgets, the relative resources, the stature of the two teams at the time. But they are also things in isolation that you can see them coming if you anticipate and maybe just believe hard enough that it's going to happen. Well, there's been some great cup runs by NPL teams. Up your Leichhardt, Heidelberg, uh, South Melbourne. I mean, we've we've had some few. And I can also remember uh, Liam Boland uh, winning a match for Green Gully uh, against uh, Central Coast down in Melbourne where he lobbed one in from about 30 or 40 metres. Uh, I'm sure you remember that one as well. Yeah, that, that really was a special night in 2016. I was there at Green Gully that night. It was the biggest crowd I've ever seen at Gully before or since. And for those of you that aren't from Melbourne, it's not the most hospitable ground. There are really only about 20 seats under shelter that are elevated, and those are for the VIP. <laughs> there, there was no media facility of, of any kind near the halfway line. You sit on a, li- a little box out in the corner of the field. And the broadcast scaffold, which Michael Cockerell, uh, the late Michael Cockerell's immortal call of Boland, 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 uh, that was over yeah, on the hill good. on the outer side, out in the cold in the middle of winter. So the fact he was able to, to find a, a call of that sort of immortal quality uh, is a real testament to the job he did on the night. But what I remember about that game, guys, was Central Coast, for their proud history, have always had uh, a Coast radio station commentate every single one of their games for radio. And Paul Dickerson was the man who came down solo to Melbourne, saw this ground, saw absolutely nowhere to set up, and he ended up in this little kind of chicken coop arrangement on the roof of the media box, which I don't think anyone has ever stood in before or since on his own in the middle of winter, in the cold and the rain. And he watched his Mariners get beaten by that incredible goal. And uh, well, I hope he earned his money that night and it was worth the trip. He was part of a a memorable and unforgettable night of uh, football history, but I hope he at least got excited on the goal, even though it was the Mariners who got rolled. And the thing I remember about that game was Tony Wormsley, who I think probably had one of the worst win-loss records of any A-League coach in the history of the competition. I had to go and find him as part of my day job for Football Victoria at the time. And he was just standing in the bistro, watching the post-game on TV afterwards. And I said, hey, Tony, we need to do the press conference. And he's like, no, all right, mate, let's go do it. And I think he, he had the look of a man who already knew that that result had sealed his fate and he wouldn't actually be leading the Central Coast Mariners into the A-League season, which ultimately proved the case. He was dismissed from his job shortly after. Well, um, let's have a look at uh, the, the games that are coming up and I'll just pick a couple out to you. Obviously, one that I've got my eye on is that my burgers, Heidelberg United, they take on Brisbane Raw. That's the, um, that's the cup set that I think I've got my hands on. Brisbane, we haven't heard much about uh, how they're assembling their A-League men's squad. They just might come down and uh, face a Heidelberg United, which is building a bit of momentum in the NPL Victoria. They're a proud club, got a little bit of resource, and I'd expect Heidelberg to give themselves some chance in that game, Mateo. Can I say that Brisbane Raw have actually done well just to make this point? Think back a couple of months, and that completely unexpected win they had against Western Sydney Wanderers in the qualifying round game at Wanderers Training Facility. Kind of like yes. the last thing you want to do going into the off-season is have all this pessimism and negativity because you're out of the cup already. And I think most Raw fans were resigned to the fact it was going to be them. 
and then they pulled off the surprise win. And Luka Ivanovic was really good. But I agree with you. I think that that one is the, the blinking red light going into this first round, not least because some of the other traditional teams that may have been rolled by A-League teams in the past, namely Perth and Wanderers, aren't actually in the FA, FA the Australia Cup anymore. They've already been knocked out. So this is the first year of the current era going back to 2014 where the fixed mechanism of the draw has been done away with. So we've got an open draw that doesn't necessarily guarantee a state-level side reaches the semi-finals. Uh, do you see that as, as beneficial, as an important step in the maturation of the, uh, of the competition, that a deep run by a state side won't uh, come with that caveat of perhaps falling on the right side of the fixed path. It's going to be a genuine achievement, if that makes sense. Well, it is funny how many A-League versus A-League ties we got. I think it actually worked out exactly the same as what it would have back in the days where we used to have protections in the draw to try and get one of those non-A-League teams through to the final eight. We've got Sydney against Central Coast, Newcastle against Adelaide, and Western against Melbourne Victory. So that's three heavy hitters that are going out straight away we could potentially be losing three of last season's finals. So even strong A-League teams could be getting knocked out at this point. I think that it is good for the maturation of the competition, as you say. I do worry a little bit, though, uh, that New South Wales hasn't quite pulled its weight because the only team from NPL 1, first grade, that got into the round of 32 is Sydney United, and they're not even going to make the top six. We've got a regional team in Wollongong United. We've got um, a Newcastle-based team, uh, Broadmeadow Magic, representing the Northern New South Wales Federation. Bonnie Rigg from the second tier uh, of New South Wales, not even from the top division. And we've got the uh, Northwest Sydney Spirit, who, by Bonnie Rigg, aren't even in the top flight. So I, I do think that maybe some of the Nightskins, like an Arpia Leichhardt, aren't there, uh, similar to previous seasons. And so it means that A-League teams may actually get a little bit of an easier run than they would have otherwise expected because based on the title race in New South Wales NPL this season, they're not facing the best of the best that the NPL has to offer in this campaign, which which is a shame but also it might make the upsets even bigger if we get one. You mentioned Wollongong United FC in there. They're the lowest ranked side in the final 32. So if you consider the A-League top tier, they're the sixth tier playing down in the Illawarra Premier League. Uh, they are of uh, a club of Macedonian heritage, Scott Chipperfield, Milo Stiolski, uh, among some of their most notable former players. They've been drawn against Green Gully, who you spoke about earlier. So what chance are they uh, of an upset or would it be considered an upset if they were to get the job done? Uh, no, it, it absolutely would. I think if any of the New South Wales teams were to uh, to get through it, it would be a decent achievement. Even Sydney United against the Monaro Panthers in Canberra could be particularly tricky for them because the Canberra team, even though it's an away game, they know how to play these midwinter games. They know how to sort of compete. And Sydney United have got the Waratah Cup final to think about that very weekend. They played Monaro on the 3rd of August and then they actually play for a piece of silverware against Wollongong United in the Waratah Cup final on the 7th. So any incentive that uh, Sydney United have to get out of this season with a trophy and really with something on the honour roll comes at the weekend after they play that game against Monaro Panthers. So I think that could be a bit of a, relatively speaking, an upset special as well for the Capital football team to knock off the one from New South Wales. And what about the Darwin entry? I'm always interested, since they were granted the one slot in 2015, uh, we've had seven editions of the Cup and Mindel Aces are going to be the sixth side uh, to make it. So what is it about the uh, the Northern Territory League that means, you know, does it play out each season in such a competitive manner? 
and they are going to host Avondale. So are they a chance of an upset uh, as well? I mean, the short answer would be no, but Avondale's league form is pretty patchy. I have to admit, I, during lockdown in 2020, I commentated the Darwin League remote from Melbourne off a computer screen for 18 weeks, including the grand final, which Middle Aces won back in 2020. And then I believe they went back to back in 2021. So they've actually been quite a strong team and shifted the balance of power up in the Northern Territory. With that said, players in their 40s are regularly amongst the best players in the Northern Territory Men's Premier League. So we can't get too carried away against the team, the quality of Avondale, which has Liam Boland playing in it. It's a great facility up there at Larrakeer Park. They should get a good crowd as well, Mindalaces. Uh, a very well-run club trying to lift the standard and improve the professionalism of the competition up there in Darwin. And I think that they, they run a pretty good show up there and, and it is a credit to them that they are consistently delivering a team to this round of 32 and basically they have to beat the team from Alice Springs in order to get to this stage of the competition. But sadly for them, I think Avondale is a bridge too far. Had they drawn, say, the team from Adelaide, the team from Perth, the team from Brisbane, maybe a Wollongong United or a Bonnie Rick, maybe an upset's on, but I just think player for player and also the individual quality of Avondale will be too good. But one thing's for sure, in this day and age of streaming the NPL, Mindel Aces will have a game plan and hopefully, I think for the sake of uh, a bit of romance, it would be wonderful if they could spring a surprise. Teo, it would, would be remiss of me not to mention that you've been uh, covering the Women's Euro Championships for Optus, so writing some fabulous copy. I'd love to get your opinion on what you're watching, uh, how good the tournament is, and uh, and the big, the big nations in Europe that just seem to be cruising through the group phase. It, it's been a, an eye-opening competition from the point of view that the very best in Europe have blown away the second tier. We've seen France smash Italy 5-1. We've seen Germany beat Denmark 4-0. We saw England beat uh, Norway 8-0. Uh, these aren't big teams versus minnows. These are teams in the top 10 of the FIFA rankings versus teams in the teens of the FIFA rankings. And I'm trying to get to the bottom of why that is and what has happened in order for the gap to open so much. Is it a case of, the leagues have separated themselves in terms of their strength, that the players' conditioning and preparation and tactics and professionalism has gone to such a level that in a major tournament, the heightened level of emotion means that they are able to rise to the occasion. I think this tournament was always one that uh, threatened to very much go to the seedings and then the big hitters would sort them out, sort themselves out in the knockout rounds. And I think that's what we're still going to see. Uh, the big test is going to be for Italy. Can they get past Iceland? Can they bounce back from that France embarrassment? and get into the knockout rounds, but I don't think there are major questions over the other teams. It, it's hard to believe that Norway is going to lose a game 8-0 and still potentially front up in a you know winner-takes-all quarterfinal. But I suspect that it is going to be one of the bigger teams. My pre-tournament pick was an England versus France final, and on the evidence presented, I maybe the Germans are, are coming, but I don't see a reason to deflect away from that prediction just yet. Well, Taya, we're enjoying reading your work with Optus, mate, and uh, and enjoying the tournament too, especially given that uh, it's the last major international women's tournament before the the Women's World Cup in Australia and, and New Zealand next year, and and we're getting to see um, the uh, the form line. Um, of the Matildas um, in real time with Spain and Portugal, even that result against Portugal looking a little bit better than uh, than it originally did um, based on on the seeding. So, uh, mate, we'll we'll read with interest um, your uh, your work over the women's Euros, and obviously listen to your commentary on on the Australia Cup um, over the the, uh, uh, the course of the next several months as we uh, we get to the sharp end and the, and the final.
No, I appreciate it, guys. You'll be hearing Michael Zapone on that Brisbane Raw uh, visit to Heidelberg United. So he won't get to add his name to the list of callers that have, have seen a big cup upset. I personally, I'm looking forward to a couple of games in Sydney. We'll be back in my uh, original hometown of Melbourne for that Melbourne victory against Western United Clash at a venue still to be determined. Uh, I wonder, will I be coming back to Melbourne very briefly and then heading out to Ballarat or will, will everyone do the right thing and just put it at Amy Park? But that is still to be determined. And uh, one thing that I certainly concur with you on is that we love the round of 32 of the Australia Cup. Hey, Taya, thanks so much. It's been a little while since we've had you on the show, mate. We're we're really grateful to to have uh, your contributions and your expertise, mate. Stay well. A pleasure. Thank you. Taya Pelleziri from 10 and Paramount Plus, one of the best in the business and uh, uh, an outstanding. Real, I love the, the excitement that Taya brings um, as any uh, great commentator uh, with, a, with a signature touch uh, uh, needs to Taya Pelleziri. So, all right, uh, stick around. After the break, we've got Willem Edge and I are going to have a bit of a yarn about the Socceroos and Matilda Socceroos. Um, as we head to the World Cup, and of course the Matildas exited out of the AWF uh, tournament, the under-23 squad were playing in. That's next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. Great chat there with Taya Pelaziri, boys. Uh, we've got plenty to talk about Socceroos and Matildas-wise, but before we do, our very good friends at Hoyts are back for a second week. I think I mentioned last week that I was going to the MCG with my good friend Johnny Accardo from Hoyts to see Manchester United play Crystal Palace. In fact, and he corrected me after listening, we're going to see them play Melbourne Victory, of course. We go to the Chairman's Club at the G on Friday night. Really looking forward to that. And I'm also looking forward to doing some cooking over the weekend with my favourite Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. So if you're not familiar with Hoyt's Herbs and Spices, make sure you get into your Coles, your supermarket, your soup. Woolworths or any good independent supermarket. There's also lots of other lovely food products in the Hoyts range. Edge, do you like the the Jardiniera pickled garden salad, the very vinegary uh, uh, cauliflower and carrots? Do they tickle your taste buds? Oh, they certainly do. I love a good salad. Mm, Hot chilies, gherkins, capers, sun-dried tomatoes, calamata and green stuffed olives. You'll be happy with Hoyts, Willem, and I know that your family are great cooks and you've got the pantry stuffed with Hoyts products where you can get them at Coles Woolworths and Awkward Independent Supermarkets. All right, Willem, um, far away, mate. Uh, there's plenty to get through. Yeah, there is, Robin. Yeah, my family are great cooks, but I'm not. So that's why I'm leaning on the Hoyt's uh, spices to change the mood of my food. I've got the all-spice ground, the aniseed, the basil leaves, the bay leaves, the pantry is stocked. So it's been a good week with Hoyt's on board. It's uh, it's tasting pretty good in uh, in South Yarra. Let's have a look at Socceroos and Matilda Central for the Green and Gold Army. Packages are on sale for the Qatar World Cup, which feature 13 nights in Doha and a guaranteed ticket to each of Australia's three group games. And if you have any questions whatsoever, Michael, this is the week to ask them. You've got tour information nights in Sydney on Wednesday night. That's July 20 at the Eastwood Leagues Club and in Melbourne the following night, July 21 at Lakeside Stadium. So this is the week to get in there, ask your questions and make a decision that you will not regret. All other info is available at ggatravel.com.au. Michael, for those thinking of making the journey and those who are also keen to change the mood of their food, having listened to Box to Box, what are some of the cultural and cuisine-based highlights that they can expect over in Doha? The first item to note is uh, there's quite a few ethnic communities over in uh, in Doha who um, have their own uh, restaurants with their own cuisine. But obviously, we've got to start with uh, the homegrown 
uh, Arabic Middle Eastern food, which is all based on Lebanese cuisine. Rob will tell you that the great, uh, the great cuisine out of um, his mother's birthplace is uh, just sort of steamed across uh, the rest of the Middle East. So the Lebanese food in Doha is absolutely sensational. Um, Shishtawak, uh, mm. some fantastic uh, barbecued meats, the salads, more salads than you can poke a stick at, uh, and some fantastic uh, Lebanese sweets. Um, and, of course, everyone loves an Arabic coffee over there. Um, but there's a great big Filipino community in um, uh, in Doha, and you get some wonderful Filipino food um, at uh, local street uh, restaurants, uh, some good Thai food as well. Uh, not to mention, um, quite if, for the adventurous ones, uh, quite a bit of uh, good African food as well because of the African mm. communities. But um, I think the staple diet will be at the food truck mm. uh, down at the night market uh, in Lasalle or over uh, out the front of one of the stadiums as you uh, enjoy a beer before a game. Um, no doubt you will like the uh, fantastic Arabic uh, rolls. Um, they're like a samosa type uh, product, uh, but they all eat them as their sort of fast food. Uh, and some kibir. Rob will tell you what a kibir is, but there's look so much food. Yeah. Like, well, Rob, you got the uh, you got the napkin there to just wipe the side of your mouth. You just uh, uh, lay back in the no, chair. No, mm. no, I got to hand it, hand it to Edge. He uh, he describes the food uh, as well as he describes football. It was absolutely uh, mouth watering. That little description you gave there. Now, kibir, of course, uh, for the uninitiated, is is minced very finely, minced lamb with uh, with burgle, which is a cracked wheat, um, and uh, and it's mixed and served. It's the national dish of Lebanon, the national dish of many countries in the Middle East, and it can be served raw with uh, uh, with um, uh, oil and uh, and onions and Lebanese bread or it can be served baked or fried it's absolutely delicious you mentioned the shish to walk though obviously the chicken with the garlic sauce and all that sort of stuff and there's just I know we're meant to be talking football and we will in a moment but uh, but there's just a certain sense of authenticity and flavor when you travel in the home of of a cuisine that no matter how hard you try you just can't equate um, to um, to the same uh, flavors that um, that you get when you're uh, over there. So if anybody's thinking of, uh, of travelling and they like a, a good feed, uh, I reckon there is absolutely no doubt that they're going to get the feed. And don't forget the lamb shawarma, Rob. There are plenty oh, of those going around. Absolutely. Well, the look, well, we, lamb sandwich. <laughs> yes. I was going to say, to new listeners of box to box who might have come on board through the Ace Radio platform, that's probably a monthly food wrap that we do. We don't plan it, but it generally <laughs> seems to uh, work its way in there somehow. So, uh, yeah, no, it sounds, sounds good to me, Edge. Look forward to getting over there. Let's have a look at the Matildas, the young Matildas to start. They've fallen short of the semifinals of the AFF Women's Championship. They did turn it around at the back end, though. They strung three wins together against Indonesia, Singapore, and Malaysia. Amy Sayer scored all four against Indonesia to finish the group stage equal top of the Golden Boot. But ultimately, it was that 1-0 list loss to the Philippines and draw with Thailand uh, that cost them the chance to advance. But Michael, you've said this is probably, a, a, with respect, a second or third string sort of Matilda squad. I suppose when you take squads like that to international tournaments, you want to leave uh, with some confidence and, you know, for, uh, five goals for Amy Sayer, uh, a hat-trick for Mackenzie Hawksby in the last game, a 6 a win over Malaysia. Uh, I suppose there's plenty of benefit to take despite the fact that it did get off to a bit of a slow start. Oh, five days in nine games. I don't think you can read anything into the results. as all bouts of gastro, ill health. Radica, yep. uh, you name it, uh, it was all happening over there. Um, so <clears throat> I think the reality is it's just a great development opportunity for the girls that uh, went over there and um, and got the opportunity to play for Australia uh, in that tournament. Uh, it's a very important that we fly the flag in the AAF events. Um, um, very important to the development of football in that region, especially for women. And um, yeah, I, 
I think if they're going to treat that tournament seriously, you know, you, you cannot be playing a game every third day. So, you know, five games in nine days, ridiculous. We are on the clock until the World Cup, of course, and a couple of our biggest Socceroos are without clubs. Aaron Moy is officially on the lookout, having negotiated that release he'd been angling for for some time from Shanghai Port. His manager, Josh Barnett, has said this week that he's had plenty of interest from around the world. And Michael, you uh, told us that little anecdote about what Aaron put himself through to get to Doha and get us qualified. Uh, So it would be safe to assume that a World Cup is certainly a priority for him. So good luck to to Aaron and his management in finding a club and finding some minutes. minutes. Uh, The mystery goes on with Tom Rogic, though. Graham Arnold said he still hasn't had any contact with him and that he's concerned uh, about the situation. Rogic was spotted in Sydney last week, Edge, which doesn't really mean anything. I mean, that's where he's from. But hopefully that line of connection can be opened up again because I don't think there's anyone uh, that wouldn't say Tom isn't within at least our best 14 to 15. Absolutely. Um, we just hope whatever's going on there is resolved itself and Tom either makes a decision one way or the other. I think um, the football going public um, uh, and our football community uh, would really uh, love Tom to explain um, within reason, what's happening. Um, he's been a big mainstay of the football program. He's benefited from um, the Elite uh, Football Australia program. He's also uh, established and um, re-enhanced his, uh, his uh, credibility by playing at World Cups. Um, so I think it's not all one way with these situations. It's not just up to the player to determine their availability. I think there is an onus of responsibility. Also, the Socceroos are in the top five or six nations in the world in terms of remuneration when they reach the World Cup. So with the CBA, uh, um, you know, heavily weighted in favour. So I would think I would think that uh, all of that, when you boil it down, um, Tom does uh, owe uh, the football public uh, uh, at least an explanation as to what he's doing at some point. Um, we just hope that uh, he finds a way through whatever he's dealing with and uh, makes himself available for the World Cup. And if he's good enough, he'll be there. And uh, he can definitely... Um, uh, definitely do some damage. It's, of course, with 26 players at the World Cup, it's a, you can carry a player like Tom who may be not at his peak because he can still be an impactor, wouldn't you think, Will? No, certainly, certainly a, a, a spot on the plane for Tom Rogic any day of the week. Whatever word about Dean Bazanis, great story going on here. We should have touched on it last week, but we know he went down to the bottom of, uh, well, to, to the non-league uh, level in England, really, with Sutton United to uh, support his partner, Steph Catley, and her her adventure over there in London. He signed for Reading, uh, Rob. He's climbing up the pyramid. He's in the championship. Uh he was once, as we know, called the best 16-year-old keeper in the world by Rafa Benitez. That was some time ago. Uh, he maybe hasn't had the career that he might have expected, but the fact that he sort of put it all on hold to go and play uh, fifth tier and, and support his partner uh, was, was you know, exceptional and, and notable uh, and honourable, I should say. Uh, the, the football is now sorting itself out for him as well, and he's up in the championship, and a chance to, to play at that level is, uh, is brilliant. It's an honourable uh, decision to make, and uh, one uh, you know that involves a lot of sacrifice, especially when you're a player uh, that um, you know it's got the, the kind of um, uh, uh, well, at least the capacity to get a, a first team um, goalkeeping uh, gig at his own level. Um, so uh, to to get uh, an outcome like that, uh, yeah, it's nice to hear that the good guys could get a result from time to time. And to close, Musket Watch, of course, uh, Yokohama remain five points clear atop the J-League despite dropping points to Ceruzo Osaka. Edge, of course, this had to be the week that Adam Taggart found the net. Of course it did. He came off the bench to make it 2-0 uh, before Muskie's side levelled up with minutes to play. So they remain five points clear. This Saturday, they face a trip to Sagantosu uh, before hosting second place Kashima the following week. And if we do have time to squeeze one more in, I will just squeeze in. Shepard and his going to host Group G of the AFC Under-23 Asian Cup qualifier 
as later this year. The group's going to feature China, Cambodia, and the Northern Mariana Islands going to be played from October 5 to 9. All right, boys, well done. Uh, we are going to welcome after the break, um, I guess, who we haven't had on for a very long time, but we all enjoy reading his work with The Athletic. That's, of course, Carl Anker, and uh, he's going to chat to us about Manchester United's tour of Australia, but more importantly, the uh, the dawning of the Eric Ten Hag era. Stick around. Carl Anker next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. Now, we mentioned off the top of the show that Manchester United touched down in Australia on Wednesday after Eric Ten Hag got his reign up and running with a 4-0 win over Liverpool in the time-honoured Bangkok Century Cup. Well, it might not be time-honoured, but at least it's a little piece of silverware that broke um, a drought. And uh, as much as it was a a friendly, it was a win against uh, a bitter enemy. Uh, And any win for Manchester United against Liverpool is a positive thing. And to talk about it and to talk about Eric Ten Hag and the trip to Australia is our guest from The Athletic, Carl Anker. How are you, Carl? All right, thank you. How are you? Very well, thank you, Carl. And uh, we're, we're sorry you couldn't uh, join us uh, in Australia for this tour. I know uh, um, I'm heading off to, to both the games that are that are in Melbourne. But uh, I guess what can, what can you draw out of of a, of a match like this? I mean, it's a little over three weeks away from the the start of the Premier League. Uh, uh, Eric Ten Hag uh, set his stall out with a, a a pretty strong lineup in the in the first eleven that he put out on the park against uh, um, against Liverpool uh, in Bangkok. Uh, what do you what, if anything, do you take from that match? I think a few positives there. Obviously, you have to have the caveat of it's preseason. It's against a heavily rotated and varying quality Liverpool team. So there were three different Liverpool teams every every half hour was a change. But I think what was encouraging was this was the first time we've seen an open training session with Manchester United since 2019 in that preseason tour. It's also the first time I've seen a Manchester United manager lead day-to-day training since possibly the days of David Moyes. So um, it was nice seeing uh, the detail and the minutiae in a way that we haven't seen in several years. Obviously, uh, first look at uh, this new side under Ten Hag, Carl. Is there anything that you've deduced from it so far, just in terms of likely structure? Are there, is there any personnel that, that I mean, has raised your eyebrows? Or is there any, what, what can you read into it so far? It's the adoption of Croyfian, if, if you allow me to use that word, Croyfian principles at Manchester United. This is a, a more structured, more, um, in air quotes, modern style of football being played at Manchester United. They, they were pressing from the front. They were using variable pressing. They were also uh, borrowing a little bit out of um, the Pep Guardiola playbook of you press for a little bit, and if you're not successful, winning the ball back after a little bit, and let's, let's drop deep and, and retreat into a 4-4-2. So that was quite encouraging. There was also a little bit of usage of inverted fullbacks. Uh, Dallow and Luke Shaw would come into the half spaces where Manchester United were in possession as well. So those were some of the, the really encouraging sites there of just, just going, you begin to see the seeds of, of, of Ten Hag ball, if you, you uh, forgive me for such a crude explainer. Yeah, absolutely. And um, if you were to reach into Ten Hag's back pocket and pull out his notebook and on the top there, it would say, you know, to-do list. What do you think uh, is still there in terms of items one to three? Uh, you know, what is what has he still got? That obviously he's inherited quite a position there, hasn't he? Top of the to-do list would be to to continue rebuilding that central midfield area. So 
as we can understand it, Manchester United are in a very protracted negotiation period with Frankie de Jong. We understand that Christian Eriksen has made a verbal agreement as with Manchester United, but it's subject to um, a quite rigorous medical process, as you might understand. Um, so those would be two players that could possibly come in and strengthen the midfield areas. We also know Manchester United appear to be in the midst of some positive negotiations with Lissandra Martinez. So I think number two on that list will be reshaping the defence. So while Martinez can play in defensive midfield, from what I understand from my co-worker, Laurie, well, Manchester United very much envision him to be a centre-back, which makes things quite interesting because I think that means Manchester United will have one too many centre-backs going forward. So uh, I think midfield and defence We'll need a little bit of reworking. And I imagine number three in that list, written possibly in invisible ink, is is just Ronaldo, question mark, question mark, question mark. Yeah, what do you think the situation is there, Carl? Because uh, one minute uh, he's making noises that he's going to go. Then we hear that potentially the sponsors at United have made a request for him to stay. And Ten Hag's actually come out to say, he wants him to stay sounds like a bit of a gambit to me to maximize sales value but is there maybe even another line here which is possibility that Ronaldo might there might be some realization on his camp that there might be if he wants to play elite Champions League level football at a major club there's not too many around that will that will pay his wages so what is the situation there but the situation as well is not as far as we know is Cristiano Ronaldo has not joined up with the preseason tour due to, to family issues those, those issues have been accepted mm. by the football club and that is what we know we know Eric Tengar doesn't particularly want to discuss this while on tour I think there's been two or three instances where he's been asked about this in Thailand and now in Australia and he seems less than delighted by answering those questions so I think he wants to consider the football uh, but as far as we know Cristiano Ronaldo is not on tour due to family issues we understand that Mendes his agent has had talks with Todd Bowley, who is the new owner of Chelsea. That conversation doesn't appear to have made any great progress. Uh, and I believe Julian Loren ha has discussed about how Ronaldo was offered to Paris Saint-Germain, but Paris Saint-Germain said no, because they're, they're going for, for a new iteration of the club spearheaded by Kylian Mbappe and uh, Christophe Gautier. I want to say Gautier. Forgive me for the pronunciation of the surname. But, yeah. um, so... In terms of possible suitors for Ronaldo, the pool is very, very small. Um, we have reason to believe Ronaldo is possibly interested in, in lowering his wages if he can get to a club that is in the Champions League, but that's a little bit harder to pass. Uh, and, and at the moment, I think what I wouldn't disclude the, the Cristiano Ronaldo playing for Manchester United at the opening game of the season against Brighton. If he's not there, of course, um, you know, the striker position, it's, it's been a problem position anyway. He's obviously that was the top goal scorer last season, but will United look from within? There's still the likes of Rashford, uh, Martial returned from his, his loan spell in, in Spain. I mean, is a, is a striker on the shopping list whether Ronaldo goes or stays? Yes, I think the interesting thing with Manchester United was they, they were always going to need a striker soon, uh, a striker to play in 2023-2024, depending on your how you look at Manchester United. Um, a centre-forward was either the third priority or the second priority, this this transfer window, and Ronaldo not turning up to pre-season might have pushed this a bit further up. Um, how Manchester United choose to solve this situation is curious to me. So I recently did a piece on The Athletic and I said, well, the most obvious thing to do is to go out and buy a young striker 
to to replace Ronaldo. Young strikers aren't particularly cheap. If you look at the players that Ten Hag might enjoy tactically, shall we say, uh, then you're hmm. probably looking at spending somewhere in the region of 60 to 80 million on, on a player who's under the age of 28. If you're looking at trying to bring in a player as a short-term fix, which Manchester United can often do in, in recent years, then you're still probably going to spend some sort of relatively large wages and you'll be back in a situation in two or three years where you'll still have to spend 60 to 80 million on a, a young striker. There's also the possibility that Manchester United could indeed not get that striker, try and run Marcus Rashford or Anti Martial up front and then instead try and reinvest any potential money in a wide player. Um, we, we, we also know Manchester United are currently or have been interested in the Ajax winger Anthony who Ten Hag has also worked with and I think if you looked at that first half in particular against Liverpool, um, a system of Martial, Rashford, Sancho or Martial up front and other wingers could, could be the, the younger, more fluid version of events. Thinking about the De Jong deal, you mentioned it before, it's been quite a slow pro- process. We, we understand that some of that has to do with these backdated way, this backdated wage situation, he's owed money by Barcelona. But I just have a more broader question, which is, Back in, you know, certainly the Ferguson days, when Man United came calling, players tended to answer the call. And I know Barcelona are a fabulous club, but obviously a fabulous club with their own problems as well. Do you think one of Ten Hag's and also just the new executive team at Manchester United um, there is to sort of build back the luster of the club? Because it's been a club that's lost quite a lot of its shine probably over the last five or six years. I think for, for, for a large amount of time, there had been a, an unspoken or perhaps loudly spoken hegemony of, of European football clubs. So whether you were a football fan or, or football pundit, you, you sort of quietly knew that at the top of the pyramid, it was Bayern Munich, Real Madrid and Barcelona under Messi had sort of become the third club. And that at any point in time, your football player, if it was quite good, might eventually try and you know gravitate towards those football clubs. And then what we've seen in the last couple of years with Barcelona's interesting financial behaviour, they perhaps may have fallen a little bit behind uh, Real Madrid and Bayern Munich and then Paris Saint-Germain and possibly Manchester City have, have climbed a bit further up. Manchester United very much would believe themselves within the, the top dozen or half dozen of teams of teams that every player would eventually like to to reach but i think yes they have lost their luster and i think in the last five years they have not played in the champions league or as long in the champions league as as as, as much as they want they haven't got past the champions league quarter final for quite some time now as well so it, it's uh sometimes you hear fans talking about pull so we know there is premier league pull we know there is champions league pull um, and now we're essentially trying to see if there's Manchester United pull still. And I think that will be the next great challenge for Ten Hag. Um, I think it's quite interesting that you know, Ten Hag, to my mind, is one of the better, if not top, you know, top best, you know, some of the best tactical minds in football right now. But a lot of the, the negotiations for players this summer tends to be the players he's already dealt with at Barcelona, at Ajax or Ajax alumni, which reads to me as the players most likely to turn their heads and leave and join Ten Hag at Manchester United right now are players that have already encountered Ten Hag and gone, he is the guy. The ex-United winger Nani is uh, going to be turning up at Melbourne Victory and of course there will be they will be the opposition at the MCG uh, in a few days from now. I, I As a football fan in the UK, I'm 
previously. I remember Nani and sort of his trickery and what he used to bring to the game. Um, I know he didn't quite fulfill the promise at Manchester United that I think was hopes of him potentially a successor to Ronaldo uh, at one time. But what what reflections do you have of, of Nani and you know, if he has got anything left in the tank, what, what will he be bringing to the Melbourne victory side? Nani's probably approaching his first bout of revisionism from <laughs> Manchester United fans. I think there's quite a few Manchester United fans who enjoy watching Nani highlights and go, oh, wow, that was that was the last, that was perhaps the last time we had a really great, superb winger on the right-hand side. I think he, yes, he's not, he wasn't the successor to Cristiano Ronaldo, but if you look at what Cristiano Ronaldo did after he left Manchester United, very few players could have followed in those sorts. It'd be very hard to ask a player to score a goal again um, and win the better part of four Champions League medals. What Nani does offer was fantastic dribbling, uh, a purpose of vision, um, clarity. He's got a superb long-range shot. And as a Manchester United fan, I am thoroughly expecting him to do one of the most muted of muted celebrations when he scores in the preseason <laughs> friendly. <laughs> yes, we would expect that, wouldn't we, Carl? Uh, hey, Carl, before we let you go, um, I read that article you referred to uh, a moment ago in, in the uh, Athletic. And uh, and in that article, you talk about uh, a, a word that uh, Johan Cruyff, who uh, you also referenced earlier on in the conversation, uh, he used to describe the network of fans uh, sponsors, club directors, former players, journalists surrounding a club. Um, it's it's quite amazing to think that including caretaker coaches since Sir Alex Ferguson departed Old Trafford in 2013, that there have been eight managers who have not understood uh, this uh, unwritten part of the job description, which is to, uh, to have the capacity to manage what Cruyff referred to as the Eternal, I think, if I'm uh, uh, pronouncing that correctly. Um, could you just explain what you meant by this uh, word, which literally translates into English as environment? Eternal, yes. Uh, Johan Cruyff's pronunciation of Spanish and Catalan was n- n- famously rudimentary, so don't yeah. worry about getting that pronunciation wrong. But the, he used that word environment to describe just the very large network of fans, ex-players, presidential figures, senior club officials, pundits, that were all around Barcelona and all had an opinion on how Barcelona had to be run and, and the best interest for everyone at Barcelona. And I've been thinking about this quite often. I mean, I've recently read Simon Cooper's fantastic book on Barcelona that I hardly recommend. And mm-hmm. I thought, well, every club probably has their own unique internal. And I think Manchester United's one is very much a tinderbox right now. And I think it has been in, in some years. So Manchester obviously haven't won a league title since Sir Alex Ferguson's retirement. Alex Ferguson used a term called the junior board, which was essentially all the season ticket holders that sat quite close to him at Old Trafford and would tell him what to do. And he's like, okay, sure, I'll do that. Mm-hmm. And I think if we look at the history of the post-Ferguson permanent managers at the very least, David Moyes very much didn't quite understand the, the environment. He, he looked scared for, for if to, to not put it across in an academic sense. Uh, Louis van Gaal, very, I think there's some interesting sections in his book where he said he wanted to be more of an English manager, so he didn't take training, and his football was uniquely, it was very esoteric, and part of me wants to see what his eventual plan was, but he put so many voices out of joint, I don't think that was particularly tenable. Jose Mourinho seemed to understand how the environment of Manchester United works, and he obviously he's a big personality, and he managed to get some of that environment to work for him and I think even to this day we are still feeling the effects of Mourinho's 
touch on Manchester United, not just on the playing squad, but also on the fan base as a whole, especially now you know, he's the last manager to have won a trophy for Manchester United. So there's also a, a subsection of, of Interno around Mourinho. And then, of course, Odin and Solskjaer, which created its own sort of small civil war, you can say, with, with some football fans believing Oligon Solskjaer could one day become the manager that would win a, a league title for Manchester United. What others thought he was tactically a little bit off the pace compared to, to the likes of Pep Guardiola, Jurgen Klopp and, and others in the Premier League. So I think the next thing and the big challenge for Eric Ten Hag, more so than winning 4-0 and, and winning a, a delightfully large trophy in, in Thailand or mm. bringing in other players, is just to get a buy-in from players, from fans, from YouTubers, from former professional football players who won trophies for Alex Ferguson to go, even if I don't make sense of this, Eric Ten Hag has a plan and I trust Eric Ten Hag to carry out that plan, which sounds very simple, but I don't think we've had that from a United manager since Jose Mourinho's first season, mm. at the very least. And I think that would be the big challenge. Can you make the many, many, many doubting Thomases in the Manchester United fan base go, I believe in Eric Ten Hag? Mm. And that's the question uh, that only time will answer, isn't it, Carl? Yeah, I think I think it's like the unique structure of the 22-23 football season. It might take until after the World Cup to, to get a, a closer look or figure out as to how, how this buy-in of Ten Hag is working and, and what happens next. Hey, Carl, thank you so much for joining us, mate. I'm really looking forward to going out to the MCG to, to watch them. Uh, I was there when they played, uh, Victory played Liverpool uh, um, a little over 10 years ago, and I'm sure that the atmosphere is going to be very similar when uh, Manchester United uh, run out, no matter who uh, wears the, the famous red shirt. And, uh, and you know, we'll get a little bit of a taste of what a Premier League match is like, uh, a little bit of a taste against Crystal Palace uh, on Tuesday. Uh, um, and uh, and there'll be, you know, uh, the, the feel of, um, for a lot of expats who just, you know, can't get home and, and watch uh, uh, games in, uh, in in their natural environment. So, Carl, so thanks so much for, for, for taking the time to join us. Uh, we, we, we love your work uh, with The Athletic and when we listen to your podcast and, and we're very grateful that you, you've joined us on ours. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Carl up from The Athletic. All right, guys, stick around. We've got a little bit more to go through in stoppage time. That's next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. This is Box to Box. This is stoppage time. Fourth official's given us heaps of time. I've really enjoyed uh, the show this week. A couple of great guests, Teo Pelaziri, talking about the Australia Cup and some of his reflections on the Women's Euros. And, of course, Carl Anker, one of the uh, the best in the business. He's sort of like the... Um, the the nightclub crooner journalist isn't he with that um, the low tones and uh, and uh, somber uh, uh, style that he delivers but uh, his expertise is absolutely without question. Before we get into stoppage time, though, uh, our good friends at Chemist Warehouse. They got a message for you. Stock up and save right now because there's better team ready to use a sore throat gargle, which we talked about with Edge last week. He's stocked up 120 mils. For $9.99 in all those air-conditioned rooms around the world. Codril day and night, 48 tablets for $12.99. Nurofen, 200 grams, 96 tablets for $15.99. Are they working for you, Edge, those Nurofens? Well, those Nurofens are keeping me going as I battle through day three of uh, the Lugie COVID. 
Oh, you're doing beautifully, mate. The spicy fluorinurofen will uh, help you through it. Guardium acid reflux, if you're eating too much of that spicy Thai food, 14 tablets for $8.99. And while you're at Chemist Warehouse, I imagine, Derek, um, you've got a, a great stack of uh, the INC plant protein, a two kilogram uh, tub for $64.99 for your workouts. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, obviously, when you see me in person, I'm sure you can see the difference every day when I, when I, when I do it. I do a rippling mass of humanity, the great Derek. And get Bondi Protein Co. Vegan or Keto 1 kilogram range for $34.99. Where do you get it? Of course, you get it at our great friends at Chemist Warehouse across this wonderful country of ours. Great savings are every single day. Uh, now, Derek, we've been through a lot uh, throughout the course of the show already. Um, and... Um, Look, just question without notice. Uh, I know you do have a schedule, but Raheem Sterling, um, can you name me, um, uh, you know, one player um, or a couple of players maybe who have, who've played at uh, at three of the big clubs? Yeah, well, the most obvious one I can think of is Daniel Sturridge. Uh, of course, he started his career at Manchester City uh, there, and then he where did he end up? He then went into Chelsea. And then he ended up at Liverpool. So, like, there's someone that's done the three. And, of course, he completed the the quad by going to Perth, <laughs> uh, Perth Glory as well. I was so, wondering if you were going to do that. Yeah. So, yeah, Dan, Daniel Daniel Sturridge would be the name that I would say. Like, there have been other players. You know, Robbie Fowler played for Liverpool, Man City and Leeds. And, obviously, Leeds were a big thing when when Robbie was was playing for them. So, yeah, look, you do get, you do get the odd player that pops up at different places. But it's not that common, Rob. No, it's not. Um, some of the other things we wanted to talk about, um, we, we've uh, already had, obviously, a brief conversation with uh, Teo earlier in the show. Uh, he's covering the women's Euros. But uh, but uh, not a, a lot of, uh, of uh, articles or podcasts um, I've read or listened to have talked about, um, you know, just, I mean, they've talked about the pressure of England against Austria in that opening match. But, uh, but uh, what if, you know, things had gone wrong? I mean, it, it was a 1-0 result. It really should have been a 3 or 4-0 result. Uh, uh, the Austrians had a couple of opportunities late in the game and, uh, and could have nicked it. Uh, the, the story could have played out very differently. Yeah, it, it, it could have done. But then obviously England then went on and showed their true quality in the next game, as Taylor was saying, by, you know, winning 8-0 and Beth Mead scoring a, an amazing hat-trick and a couple of goals um, there from, from Faye White as well. So, like, I was thinking this possibly is the best England result ever, male or female, at a major tournament. And, you know, leaving aside 1966 and the 4-2 the for the... England over West Germany as it was then for the World Cup. I just thinking about England in major tournaments. They don't win eight nil. They're not meant to win eight nil in in these games. So I think all respects to them for for what they managed to achieve. And as Teo said, Norway no mugs. I was listening to our favourite one of our favourite podcasts, Guardian Guardian Football Weekly this week, and Barry Glendening described uh, Norway's performance as "quote utter shite." But um, I think I think that takes away from the quality of this this England performance. I mean, probably not celebrating England performance, not something that you would like to dwell on too much. Edge, but were you? impressed by that and was there anything else that you've seen any other moments that, that have uh, caught your attention in the euro so far oh you couldn't be helped but be impressed by that i can still remember the uh, semi-final between the united states and england um and england had them on toast for a big portion of that game and i thought watching the england team that they were 
destined for some good results in the next uh, four, four to six years uh, with that group of players. Um, they disappointed at the Olympics. It was obviously not the entire English team, but a core group of them. But obviously they play there as Great Britain. But um, I think that, uh, yeah, England's uh, going to take a, a power beating in this moment after that, especially on home soil um, with the support of the, the locals. I've been looking at some of the colour behind the scenes from various social media feeds. It looks an absolutely fabulous uh, event. And I think England's going to have a great amount of support and you know they'll, they're going to take a pair of beating. I think that result was... Uh, that uh, was was very dominant. They've got multiple options that they can rotate through their forward half. They they look very very dangerous. So football might be coming home after all, Derek. Yeah, and I, I have heard some half-hearted attempts at singing that at the grounds. To be honest with you, I think they should just pack that away. I think that's very much in you know part of the stank that 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 surrounds the men's team. And look, I think there's something fresh and interesting about. This England team, look, they won't they won't play Germany because obviously they beat they um uh, they they beat Spain, so probably play Spain or Denmark in in the next round. And look, you know, having just brushed aside Norway, you'd like to think that they will be taking on taking on all comers. Uh, looking at you know other highlights, um, you know, the Grace Gennaro hat trick for France was a great one uh, in the five one thrashing of uh, Italy at Rotherham's fantastically named New York Stadium. Got no idea why it's the name, that is the name of the stadium or indeed why they're playing in Rotherham. But anyway, and anyone who wants to know YouTube something, Daniel Danielle van der Donk's winner for the Netherlands over Portugal was a cracker and much needed for the, uh, well, defending champions, I think, aren't they? So three, 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 two. So look, this, you know, we'll, we'll cover this over the next, uh, you know, week or so. I have along the... Uh, the uh, the tournament goes on for and I know it is nice to talk about the women's game from time to time on the show. Um, going to the men's game and look, we're doing our obligatory uh, transfer right roundup. And the first thing is, as we spoke about with Kyle Anker earlier, we have to do our obligatory apology for something that was incorrect from last week. So Ronaldo, we were talking about him moving on and uh, apparently he is staying at Manchester United. There is apparently an offer from Saudi Arabia for him to play for 250 million euro over a two-year period. I honestly don't know well, why. They golf, do they? I just, well, I don't know what they want him to do. But you know, I don't know why Ronaldo would want to do that. I mean, that's you know, he he certainly does not need the cash, and I really don't know if he needs to be part of you know sports washing over there. So it will be interesting to see uh, what happens. Uh, I noticed, obviously, that. Um, City announced the the, ha- the Haaland signing. Just and one thing that I was thinking about, and you mentioned Sterling before, Rob. It, it signings just seem to take ages these days. I, I remember the days where they just announced the signing and that was it. But I'm pretty sure Haaland was announced three months ago, and now he's just been announced. And Sterling, that's taken about a month. I just transfers just take a long time now, don't they? Well, they do seem to. But uh, you know, I guess um, in, in in the off season, the transfer gossip. But you got to talk about something. And you mentioned Barry Clinton earlier on. Anyone who's ever listened to the Guardian Football Weekly knows, uh, as a rather pithy observer of most things football, that um, he's one of the kind of people that really hates it. But uh, but you know, you, you've got to talk about something, don't you? And um, and, um, and and make up the, uh, the you know the few weeks in, in the in the dead time between seasons. Yeah, well, but Barry actually says that what he would rather do is just kind of go to sleep and wake up on the first day of the season and then see who runs out of the tunnel, which would be quite a novel 
a novel thing if suddenly this Ronaldo or Messi ran out the tunnel at uh, the Emirates or, or wherever it might be. And I don't know if the newspapers would feel the same way. Um, another long saga that looks like it's come to an end is Rafinha having been courted by a bunch of clubs, including Chelsea and Arsenal, is going to Barcelona. Uh, that deal has been agreed. Again, see previous podcasts on my utter, my utter incredulity of how um, Barcelona can afford to do any of this business at the moment, but apparently there is some big restructuring going on there, and that is allowing that deal to happen. Uh, Chelsea, though, looking towards the back of their their team. They've obviously lost a couple of players that have moved on. Uh, Christiansen, of course, um, being being a good example of that. And the German player whose name that I cannot call, but I will remember it by the end of the show, who went to Real Madrid on a free transfer. So they are getting uh, Koulibaly from Napoli. And Koulibaly has been an Ex oh Rudiger Rudiger is the name, but Kulibali has been there for some time. A uh, big top, been a top player for uh, for some time at Napoli. He looks pretty good. And once again, Chelsea being Chelsea, they are looking to sign Manchester City centre back Nathan Aki as well. Uh, not just another player travelling down the M6 and the M1 from Manchester to Chelsea, but also a nut Chelsea buying back another player that they used to own. So, you know, put that in the catalogue with Lukaku and a few others who they've had a player, they've given them away. Now they're buying them back again for more money. So uh, Ake possibly to uh, Chelsea as they strengthen the back line. I want to talk to Michael about Jack Wilshere, who unfortunately has retired uh, from all professional football at the age of 30, said in his statement on Instagram that he's lived the dream, uh, particularly in his spells playing for his boyhood club, Arsenal. But that disastrous spell in Denmark where he, he made very few appearances and, and didn't make a mark seems to have been the final straw for Jack. And after 210 senior appearances, 34 for England, he retires. And, you know, he gave us some good memories, did Jack uh, Edge, but... You know, this is quite a bitter end to what should and could have been a, a sensational career. Yeah, it's going to be some book when he finally uh, commits to uh, telling his story. There'll be obviously reasons uh, involved in this that we don't know. But he's much loved by the Arsenal faithful, isn't he? Because he had that connection. Arsenal was his boyhood club. That was a big part of his narrative. And he did very well for England. Um, I thought uh, he uh, he performed very well when he, when he got the opportunity to play for his country. So... Yeah, um, I think um, it's too young and uh, it's quite a bit of a sad situation that um, he's fall from the top level in England to where he ended up happened so fast, didn't it? It certainly happened fast. And look, I remember Jack Wilshire coming through. You know, my football memory becoming less relevant these days as the players start to retire, but uh, coming on as a kind of scampering, pugnacious, barrel-chested midfielder, I remember he always ran with his tongue hanging out. You know, he almost looked like a cartoon character uh, on the pitch. Uh, definitely one of the boys and, um, you know, always, always touted as a future Arsenal and, and England captain. Uh, people will remember his breakthrough game against Barcelona in 2011. I was there at the Emirates and he bossed that midfield of Iniesta, Xavi uh, and, and, and the like. Even Pep Guardiola after the game raved about uh, the talent, and he wasn't known as a prolific goal scorer, but he was the scorer of 
great goals. And there was the iconic one against Norwich in 2013, which ended a pinball passing move, a Wenger ball passing move, and, and he finished it. And I just remember the goalkeeper just being completely bewildered and collapsing on his back because he just didn't know what to do. He won goal of the season two years in a row uh, in the UK. Um, and I also remember him being pretty smashed at an FA Cup final parade, singing anti-Spurs songs down the microphone, which uh, I think caused us a lot of um, a lot of joy too. But he will start his career again. He's now the under-18s coach at Arsenal. I reckon that's a pretty good job with some of the talent that are coming through. We spoke about the under-19 uh competition for England last week and there's some players there that will think you know will be looking up to this guy Jack Wilshire will be a bit of a hero so farewell Jack and probably should mention too that talking about Arsenal and players that didn't quite live up to promise Meza Ozil uh, who's been at Fenerbahce his boyhood club uh, he's left their mutual consent and is now without a club at the age of 33 Rob so you know two players that I have fond memories of in Arsenal shirts but two players that just didn't do what we thought they would. And see, you two love to have a go at me for turning this into the Liverpool show. And I think if I uh, look at my stopwatch, you've um, had, a, had a run at um, farewelling two Arsenal players for uninterrupted for the better part of uh, six or seven minutes. But, you know, as a Liverpool man, I know that these uh, big names need to be given their, uh, their fair due as they walk out the door. So no problem from me when you do that, Derek. Oh, no, thank you. Just, uh, you know, it's, it's a slow news week again. So just trying to pick the best stories we can, Rob. <laughs> I'm going to channel a bit of Rex Hunt now and just say to Rob, get stuffed. <laughs> uh, now, before we go, though, um, uh, uh, mopping up uh, with, with the help of Wikipedia. So the New York Stadium was announced uh, on the 19th of December 2011, uh, chosen ahead of the Foundry and the Waterfront Stadium. The reason for the name is that the area of land that the stadium lies upon is called New York. And it was thought that it would be better to name the stadium after history and or where the stadium is situated, like nearby stadiums Bramall Lane and Hillsborough. Also, Guest and Crimes, a local business, used to make fire hydrants for New York City. And the chairman, Tony Stewart, also hopes that the name could bring investment for New York City or further afield. So um, a, a lot of history behind that the naming of that stadium. Uh, so um, if anyone was interested in getting to the bottom of that answer, there you go. All right, Derek, well done. Thanks again, mate. Um, another, another week in football passes by. You enjoy the week ahead? Yeah, thanks, gents. Michael, get well. Um, hope that uh, COVID shakes off soon and um, and we get to see you. Uh, I know we were doing our food review mid-show, but um, we'll find our local Middle Eastern restaurant and uh, and welcome you home in style. Yeah, home in a couple of weeks, Rob, um, and looking forward to getting through the next uh, few days of isolation and getting COVID behind me and moving on. Good on you, mate. And uh, to our good mate, Willem van Denderen, thank you. He's already shuffled off. Uh, and Damien Tardio, who uh, is behind the panel, making sure that uh, the show comes together in a nice, tight little page. Thank you, Damo. And to you, our listeners, thanks again for tuning in. Please subscribe to box to box wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and make sure that you download the show as well and, uh, and tell your friends about us. Join us next week, of course, when we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.